We're looking this morning at Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, and we're going to focus in a special way here at the end of this section, verses 11 through 14 this morning. And now the apostle says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the Holy Spirit, the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures Forever. Well, Thelma Pearl Howard, that's a name you may not be familiar with. She was born in 1915 to a very poor family in Idaho. Her mother died giving childbirth when she was very young, and she lost two siblings by the time she was 18. She was living in poverty, and she was working many jobs trying to make ends meet. Until at 36 years old in 1951, she met Walt Disney, who had not yet burgeoned as a great figure in American history, and she began working as one of the housekeepers in the Disney mansion in California. And uh, Thelma became basically like a mother to uh, Walt Disney's daughters. She was so beloved that she essentially became part of the family. And though she was paid a very minimal salary by Walt Disney because she was essentially part of the family, every year at Christmas and on her birthday, he would put stocks and shares of Disney into her name. And Thelma apparently never touched any of these stocks. She didn't even know how much she had. And at the end of her life, as she lay dying in a nursing home, really in poverty and poor health, um, and her will was being examined, it, it came, became evident that she had $9.5 million in stocks that she had never touched. Um, it's estimated today that because the Disney stock would go on and split and double and triple so often, that those shares that Disney had gifted to Thelma would be worth somewhere around 75 to $80 million today. Now, I tell you that story because it's one of the ironic stories in... Uh, modern American history, that someone could have such an inheritance and yet not know how much she had, not benefit from it, and not really live in light of it. 
um, she would never experience the greatness of what had been freely given to her. And I noted already as we looked at Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, that Paul's great burden is to help believers understand what God has done for them and what is already theirs in the Lord Jesus. Paul will, throughout this letter, speak of what God has done for believers under the language of the riches of the glory of God in Christ, the riches, the, the exceeding riches. Um, in chapter 2, he will say, God, who is rich in mercy. And then later there in chapter 2, he will talk about in the ages to come, God wanting to make known the riches of his kindness to us in Christ. Um, that theme is often not traced through Ephesians as it ought to. In fact, it is somewhat unique to Paul's letters, that Paul is fixating on the riches of what God has given us in the Lord Jesus. He has already told us that he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And we have seen that all three persons of the Godhead are active in the work of God bringing those spiritual blessings to his people. God the Father has, remember, chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world. The grace of God and the riches of his grace are rooted in the freeness of his election, that he chose a people before the foundation of the world. Why? Because it was according to his good pleasure. He wanted to. God wanted to choose a people for himself who didn't deserve the riches of his grace, in order to lavish on them all of these blessings in Christ. And, and we have seen that there are, I've noted that there are seven spiritual blessings running through verses 3 through 14. There is the blessing of election. There is the blessing of sanctification or holiness. There is the blessing of adoption. And then we looked at the work of the Son last week, and, and Christ comes, and he is the one because of our union with him, that we receive all these blessings, and he is the one who accomplishes redemption, so that Paul says another blessing is that we are, we are received in him. We are given grace graciously in the beloved, and he has forgiven our sins. We are justified. We are redeemed. And then he tells us that we are reconciled, and that that, that the plan of God from all eternity, because of what Christ has done, is to gather together in one all things in heaven and on earth that are in Christ. And now the apostle is going to continue on. And, and I think we have in verses 11 through 14 something of a crescendo in this doxology that, remember, B.B. Warfield, the great American theologian of the 20th century, said is better sung then read, there is a crescendo to what Paul is going to say. Paul is moving through salvation history, remember, from eternity past to eternity to come, from God's choosing a people before the foundation of the world to God bringing about the consummation and giving his people now, we're going to see the everlasting inheritance in Christ. This is it. This is the big thing. This is what our minds ought to fixate on more than anything. And yet, I would argue this morning that like Thelma Howard, 
We probably don't think of it often or know what we have, and we probably, if, if you're being honest with yourself, live way below, below the line of the privilege that is already yours in Christ. We're going to see this morning, as we look at verses 11 through 14, two things. First, the blessing of the eternal inheritance, and then secondly, the guarantee of the eternal inheritance. I want us to consider here in verses 11 and 12, first, the blessing of the eternal inheritance. Notice that Paul says, in him. He, he is continuing to keep the focus on Christ. Christ is the source of blessing. He is the only source. Um, only the second person of the Godhead was fit to be the Redeemer. The Father would stand as the offended party. The, the Son would come as the, the party that would stand in the place of offenders like us and would accomplish redemption. And then God the Father and God the Son send the Holy Spirit, and he applies the work of Christ. He is there when Christ is offering himself on the cross, and the same Spirit by whom Jesus is offering himself without sin at the cross is the same Spirit that God sends to dwell in your heart. If that doesn't astonish you, there is something horribly wrong. That, And I'm going to argue this this morning. Paul will move from individual soteriological blessings of salvation, from individual blessings of salvation to what I believe Paul understands to be the greatest blessing, which is God himself indwelling you and securing for you the everlasting inheritance. There is no greater blessing than the Spirit being sent into the very hearts of believers. Notice Paul says in verse 11, in him, that is in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Now, in order to understand the greatness of this blessing, you have to take in the whole of Scripture, what, what is the inheritance that Paul is speaking about? Where do we learn about the inheritance? Well, if we, if we went all the way back to creation and to God's dealing with Adam in the garden in the covenant of works, you would come to understand, as many theologians have pointed out, that if Adam had obeyed as the representative of those who would descend from him, he would have secured eternal life. He would have passed the probation. He would have eaten of the tree of life. He would have secured everlasting life as the federal head of his people. That would have been the inheritance. But, but Adam forfeited that inheritance. And he brought death, and he brought the curse, and he brought the misery of life, and he brought judgment into this world. And so, after Adam's sin, the rest of the um, special revelation of God is focused on God restoring what Adam had forfeited. God is again going to hold forth the hope of an inheritance, the hope of everlasting life. He's going to promise it to Abraham when he tells Abraham that, that in your seed, the nations are going to be blessed. That God says, I am going to give you a name and a people, a land. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless those that bless you. I'm going to curse those that curse you. And, and if we are myopic, we look at the land of Israel and we say, that's what God was promising Abraham. But that wasn't what God was promising Abraham. When the Apostle Paul looks back on that promise, 
In Romans 4.13, he says that Abraham would be the heir of the world. The promise of the righteousness of faith came to him because God was promising him he would inherit the earth. Um, God was promising Abraham the new heavens and the new earth. Abraham understood that. He understood that the promise was so much bigger than the land of Canaan. How do we know that? Because Abraham moved around the land of Canaan in a tent. God had promised him he was going to be the heir of the nations. Abraham came into that land God promised him. He never possessed any of it except a little tiny burial plot for he and Sarah, for Isaac and Rebekah, for Jacob and Leah. And that's all the land that he had, a little spot to hope in the resurrection. But what enabled Abraham to move around in a tent in the promised land was that he knew there was a greater inheritance. He wasn't, he wasn't blinded by what his eyes saw in the land that was spread out before him like a garden. Um, I love this quote. It's one of my favorite in church history. Gerhardus Voss, reflecting on the heavenly inheritance and, and Abraham and the patriarchs living in tents, he says this, only the, only the predestined inhabitants of the eternal city know how to conduct themselves in a simple tent as kings and princes of God. Only the predestined inhabitants of an eternal city know how to conduct themselves in simple tents as kings and princes of God. You see, Abraham understood that there was a better city that had foundations, the writer of Hebrews says. He understood that God had prepared a city for him. He understood that this world was not it. And then when Jesus comes, remember in the Sermon on the Mount, he, he gives those beatitudes and, and one of the most well-known and well-loved, but one we probably don't meditate on enough is, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Um, the inheritance is the new heavens and the new earth. The inheritance is glory. The inheritance is being with Christ. The inheritance is, is being in the presence of God for all of eternity with the people of God, free from sin, glorified, conformed to the image of Christ. That's the inheritance. God is promising you the greatest thing when he says that in Christ he has secured the inheritance for us. Now, let me say this this morning. If you want to understand the greatness of that inheritance, you have to understand the greatness of the cost. Now, you may say, hold on. You can't purchase an inheritance, and that should be self-evident. Um, remember when the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That is such a foolish question because you can't do anything. That man thought he could work for the inheritance. An inheritance is given by fathers to sons and daughters. It is freely given. It is, it is a gift of love. It is, a gift, it is a gift of abundance. It is a gift of care and provision. It is freely given to those in the household. And remember, the apostle 
has already told us. Notice back in the second part of verse 4 and verse 5, in love, he, that is the Father, predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Paul is essentially picking up and saying, if you are a son of God, this is what God has done for you. He is securing for you the everlasting inheritance. He has, he has already placed your name on it and appointed it for you. And, and while it only comes to us, and notice that Paul says there, we who were the first to hope in Christ, it only comes by faith in Christ, it, it was extremely costly um, for the eternal son. You know, when you go back to the latter portions of the book of Deuteronomy, and I'm sure you don't read that much, you should, but if you go back to those last chapters about the covenant blessings and curses, and, and so many people have misconstrued that and misunderstood its application and understood it, but when Israel came into that land that God had promised to give them as an inheritance, he, he then gave these covenant um, promises of blessing and cursing. If, if they obey, they'll be blessed. If they disobey, they'll be cursed. And the severity of those curses and the bounty of those blessings. And, and we are not meant to read that to think, if I do good enough, God will bless me. But if I'm too disobedient, it's just going to be curse. In fact, what you're meant to understand is that God is typifying in Israel with those physical blessings and curses, the, the greater spiritual ramifications that by nature, we deserve the curse. Every one of us. Paul makes that very clear. By nature, we are under the curse of the law. We are under the wrath and curse of God by nature. We have forfeited the blessings of God in Adam. Not one of us. Don't miss this this morning. By the way, if you hate hearing this, I'm very happy. Because that means that maybe God's at work in you. Because not one of you have anything in you that makes God say, I want to bless him, I want to bless her. In fact, by nature, we are all children of wrath, Paul says, just like the rest. But Galatians 3, the apostle says that Christ became a curse for us so that we might receive the blessing of Abraham by faith in him. Now, here's how that works. Paul says that all the blessings of God are yes and amen in Christ. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. And so when Jesus comes and he's born under the law, he's born under those, those curses and blessings of Deuteronomy. He's born under the promise of, of cursing for disobedience and blessing for obedience. And, and all that the Lord Jesus ever does is, is merit and accrue blessing because he obeys perfectly. He's born under the law. He fulfills the demands of the law. There's only one person who has ever merited the blessings of God, and that is the last Adam, Jesus Christ. But Jesus comes, and as Paul says, all the promises of God are yes and amen in him. And Jesus doesn't just say yes 
to the promises of blessing. He says yes to the curses. He says the people my Father has chosen in me and those that the Father has given me are under the curse, and so I will put myself under the curse for them. That's, that's how Paul reconciles what's happening. That he says, I will stand in their place, and I will not just take the curse. Paul says he became a curse. He became accursed on the cross because of our sin, because we were under the curse of God, so that he might give us freely the everlasting inheritance that he merited by his obedience. Isn't that amazing? When the writer of Hebrews wants you to understand the greatness of who Christ is, he says this at the beginning of his letter. He says, He is the brightness of the Father's glory, the exact representation of his person. He upholds or carries along all things by the word of his power. When he had by himself made purification for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much greater than the angels as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. He is the heir of all things. He has obtained the inheritance. Remember Psalm 2. The father says to the son, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. That means, and I don't think this is what Paul's saying here, but that means that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are part of his inheritance. He has asked the father for you. The father has already given you to him. He has laid down his life for you. And, and so the nations that Christ redeems, the people from every tongue, tribe, nation, and language, we become the inheritance of the Lord. Listen to this. This is all over the scriptures. Deuteronomy 32.9, the Lord's portion is his people. The Lord's portion, his inheritance, is his people. Jacob, his allotted heritage. Here, Psalm 32.12, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people, he's talking about believers, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage, Christ is the heir of all things. Christ has merited the inheritance. And now by faith in him, we who become sons and daughters are freely given that inheritance. It's all yours. The eternal life the new heavens and the new earth. When the Apostle Paul, by the way, tries to capture this in, in uh, 1 Corinthians, he says everything is yours, whether Paul or Apollos, the world, life, death, things present, things to come, all are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. And, and he says, listen, you're going to inherit everything. Don't you know you're even going to judge angels? That, that what God has for his people is so much bigger and so much greater than you could ever imagine. You know, if we're dismayed when we think about um, Thelma Howard not knowing the riches she had, how much more dismayed that we so downplay the greatness of the inheritance that Christ has already secured for us. Paul says in him, we have. Notice that. It's as good as done. We have obtained an inheritance. It's already yours. Your name is on it. Um. When you first hoped in Christ, that inheritance became yours. Um, 
When I was a kid, my grandparents would get me savings bonds. I foolishly thought they'd be worth money. They never were. But, you know, I'd wait seven years for them to matriculate by $25 and thought that was awesome. And, and, and the, the expectation, I used to go over and look at my savings bonds. Don't make fun of me, because you know you probably did it too. And I would, I would get those savings bonds out, and I'd be like, man, I can't wait seven years, so this is 50 bucks. And, and, and there, was a, there was an eager anticipation for the maturation of that. That's what we ought to have in us. Like we might have as a child looking at a savings bond, we ought to have this eager anticipation for the full fruition of the inheritance that is already ours. Notice, why is the inheritance ours? Notice verse 11, having been predestined. There it is again. It's the third time Paul uses these terms that denote God's eternal plan, that he chose us in Christ. He predestined us not just to become sons of God. He predestined us to the eternal inheritance, Think about that. Paul is explicitly saying he, he predestined you to be an heir of eternal life. That's why in time Christ can fulfill what he does and, and you as you trust in him become the recipient of that. Um, I want us to consider now the guarantee of the eternal inheritance. How do I know? How do I know? that this is true for me. Um, Notice that Paul now says, in him, that is in Christ, verse 13, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, before I look at the guarantee in depth. I want to note just something that you might miss. Paul, Paul has his preferred pronouns in this passage. He goes from we to you to our. Um, by the way, that's why we don't want to give up the meaning of pronouns. They're very important. We, you, our. Why does Paul say we, you, our? Well, I think very simply when Paul says, we who were the first to hope in Christ, verse 12, he's talking about believing Jews. He's talking about himself and the apostles. He's saying we, the covenant people in the old covenant, who were the first to receive the the message of the fulfillment of all things in Christ, we became heirs. And then notice he says in him, verse 13, you also. He's writing to a church that is made up predominantly of Gentiles, non-Jewish people, and he is essentially saying this inheritance is guaranteed to everyone who believes in Christ, whether they are Jews or whether they are Gentiles. Notice he says in verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. There is one inheritance. By the way, I will argue with you about this. This means that you are part of the true Israel of God. That's what Paul is saying here. He will say it even more clearly in the next chapter. You who once were far off from the promises of God and the covenants of promise have been brought near, have been grafted in. We who were the first to trust in Christ, you who also believed in him, our inheritance. You see what Paul is doing? He's saying this inheritance is guaranteed to all who believe in Christ. And now he focuses in a very special way 
on the role of the Holy Spirit, the promised Holy Spirit. Now, I do want to say this um, this morning. and some passages that it is very wearying to keep reading different people on, and this is one of those passages. Um, There are many, 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 many theologians who have tried to explain what it means that the Spirit, the promised Spirit, is the guarantee or the seal. We are sealed in him. What does that mean? And some people say, Paul here is referring to baptism, that when you're baptized, you are receiving the seal of the new covenant. That's true. And that 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 sign and seal of Christ and the benefits of redemption puts God's name on you. That's true also. That's why we baptize in in Trinitarian name. And there are many theologians in the history of the church that have said what Paul is saying is that when you were baptized, God sealed the inheritance to you. I don't think that's what Paul's saying here. There are also many others. There were numerous Puritans, Richard Sibbs and Thomas Goodwin and others, who, who thought that this was speaking of a sort of second blessing, that, that they read this verse in the King James in which it, it, I think a bad translation said, when you heard the word of truth afterward, after that, you were sealed. It's, it actually doesn't say that in Greek. It essentially says, having heard the word of truth, having believed, you were sealed. It's not saying you believed and then you were sealed. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones will frustrate the daylights out of you if you listen to his five or six sermons on that one verse and trying to explain what the second blessing is. And, and the problem with that is that, that some theologians mistakenly say that a believer can be a true believer, can be united to Jesus, but hasn't had this secondary experience of being sealed with the Spirit. That's, that's not what Paul's saying. Notice, Paul is saying, in him, you, all of you, when you heard the word of truth, when you believed in him, you were sealed. The sealing of the Spirit is happening simultaneously with you believing in Christ. Now, what is... Um, I'd first say that it is not a secondary blessing from the Holy Spirit, but is the Holy Spirit himself. And this is why I said this is the greatest blessing that Christ has accomplished for you. I'm going to go further this morning. You've got to listen very carefully. A lot of old theologians are actually going to say that Christ purchased the Holy Spirit for you. Listen to this, Jonathan Edwards. The sum of all that Christ purchased is the Holy Spirit. God is the purchaser, the price, and the thing purchased. The great thing purchased by Jesus Christ for us is communion with God, which is only in having the Spirit. I think Edwards is right. John Owen goes on and says, Christ purchases the Holy Spirit for us effectually to collate and bestow all this purchased grace upon us. That when Jesus shed his blood, he secured for us the indwelling of the third person of the Godhead. His blood essentially purchased the third person of the Godhead indwelling in his people. That means that the blessing is God himself. 
Um, I remember as a brand new Christian coming out of so much darkness, laying in my bed once, meditating on those verses in which Paul said, do you not know that you're the temple of God and the Holy Spirit of God dwells in you? And I remember being overwhelmed with the sense that I, who am just sinful dust, would be redeemed by Christ and that God would then come and dwell me with such a sinful soul as I have and would take up his resonance inside sinners like us. But, but that's, what, that's what Paul is saying, that, that Christ has purchased the Spirit to indwell you. Um, in chapter 4, verse 30, he'll actually say, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were, perch- by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. That's why I think the Spirit is the blessing himself. The Spirit coming and indwelling the people of God. I want to ask you this morning, how often do you think about or pray for a greater manifestation of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? That ought to be something we pray for constantly. We ought to pray that the Lord makes us um, sensitive to the Spirit. We ought to pray that we would know a greater measure of His influence in our lives. We ought to pray that God uh, makes us sensitive against sinning against the Holy Spirit and grieving Him, quenching Him when we sin. One thing that we ought to pray is, Lord, have mercy on me. Forgive me for grieving your Spirit. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Remember what David says, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. What is What does the Spirit do in us? And this is where Paul is now moving. What does he do? He gives us joy. He gives us peace. He gives us a sense of the presence of Christ. Remember, the work of the Holy Spirit is not to glorify himself. The work of the Spirit of God is to glorify Christ and to cause him to be formed in his people. He is the Spirit of Christ. Now, what does Paul mean when he says that we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Well, I think there are a number of things that we can meditate on when we think about the purpose of a seal. Um, First thing is that a seal uh, is a mark of authenticity. About 20-some years ago, our uh, Federal Reserve and, and government changed our dollar bills to have all kinds of hologramic strips and markings and seals. We have them on our passports. It's, it's denoting the authenticity of what this is and the value of it. And so I think in one sense, we can say that the Holy Spirit is the, the seal of the authenticity of what God has secured for us. He is, putting, he is putting a mark of authenticity on the promise of God to us. He is assuring us of that promise. And then... I think, secondly, a seal is often used to mark and denote ownership of something. Um, A king would often put the seal of his ring and wax on whatever he sent out to people. It, It showed that this is coming from him. It not only has the authenticity and the authority, it has the ownership of something. On it. And, and so I believe that when God gives his Holy Spirit to his people, he is putting on them the seal that they belong to him. That if you are indwelt by the Spirit of God, God is saying, you belong to me. Listen, y'all, I know this is hokey, but every now and then there is a pop culture reference 
that drives this home. Remember Stevie Wonder, that great prophet and poet who sang, sign, sealed, delivered, I'm yours. That's what, that's what Paul's saying. If you have the Holy Spirit, God has signified and sealed and delivered his blessings to you. You're his. He's yours. That's what Paul is saying here. There is a mark of authenticity. There's a mark of ownership. And then I think also there is the purpose of a seal to keep something secure. Remember when Jesus was buried in Joseph's tomb that, that the, the guards were worried someone might steal him. And so they went to Pilate and Herod and they said, make the tomb secure. And so he put a soldier and he put the stone and then they put a seal um, to, to secure that stone in place. And, and in a very real sense, the Holy Spirit functions as he indwells us. He is securing for us the everlasting inheritance and he is securing us for it. He is keeping us, right? The Apostle Paul says the, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Listen to me very carefully. We may not make enough of the Holy Spirit in Reformed churches because of abuses in charismatic churches, but don't miss this. The promised Holy Spirit is the greatest of God's blessing, and we ought to yearn jealously to know more of him indwelling us and to preserve his influence in us and to be sensitive to what he's doing in us and to acknowledge the benefit that we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. That's good news because at the end of the day, you and I are only going to get the eternal inheritance because of what Christ did and because we're sealed with the Spirit, not because of anything in us, not because of anything you've done, not because on Judgment Day you'll get to say, Lord, I, I was in your word, I worshiped you, I sang your praises. By the way, the Pharisees did all of that. The Pharisees taught Scripture, the Pharisees sang the Psalms, the Pharisees tithed, the Pharisees fasted, they prayed, the Pharisees observed the sacrament of uh, circumcision and Passover, the Pharisees went through all of the motions, but the Pharisees did not know the Lord Jesus. They were not sealed with the Spirit of God, and so they thought they deserved the inheritance, and God is giving it freely by his grace. Listen to this, um, just to sort of enhance the blessing, you know, The Spirit, notice there at the end of verse 13, he is called the promised Holy Spirit. He is what God promised in his covenant promises in the Old Testament. That's why Joel can talk about, in the latter days, God pouring out his Spirit on all flesh. He's what's promised, that God is going to come. God is going to indwell you. God is going to seal you for that inheritance. And, and yet, the thing that we don't want to miss is that it was that same Holy Spirit in Christ from his conception to his resurrection. He, he was sealed with that same Spirit. How do I know that? Because Jesus says, God the Father, speaking of himself, has set his seal on him. He was sealed with the Spirit at his baptism. He was empowered to do the mighty works that he did by the Holy Spirit working in him. And the same Spirit that was in Christ, he now gives to us. And he sends him to dwell in us. Listen to this. Sinclair Ferguson says, 
the Spirit who was present and active at Christ's conception as the head of the new creation, by whom he was anointed at baptism, who directed him through his temptations, who empowered him in his miracles, who energized him in his sacrifice, and who vindicated him in his resurrection, now indwells disciples in this specific identity. That's amazing. What do you and the Lord Jesus have in common? The promised Holy Spirit. That's what you have in common with him. Otherwise, we are entirely unlike him. Our experiences would be entirely indifferent. It's the Holy Spirit. He unites us to Christ. He was in Christ. Christ gives him to us. Our life is now lived in the anticipation of what the Spirit has sealed to us. It was said by one poet of Richard Sibbs, the sweet dropper, that heaven was in his heart before he was in heaven. And the point of saying that is that that ought to be the result of us really grasping what Paul is saying here. If you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise and, you, and he is the guarantee of your inheritance, then then your heart ought to be set on that, not on all of this here. This is all just going to pass away. This is not it. The next joy, the next experience, the next laughter, the next tear, this is not it. Here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Are you seeking that city? Are you hoping in the everlasting inheritance. You know, one of the tests, and I'll leave you with this this morning, and Paul has used this refrain throughout this great doxology of chapter 1, verse 3 through 14. Notice the end of verse 12. And notice the end of verse 14. Notice there, verse 12. He did all this to the praise of his glory. And notice the end of verse 14. He has sealed us with the Spirit to the praise of his glory. What ought your response to these things ought to be? It would be to cry out to the Lord, Lord, I want to praise you for the glory of your grace that you would do that for me because I have nothing in me to commend me to you, and I have done nothing to deserve this, and what you have given me is far greater than anything I could ever imagine. Now, I do want to point out also as we close that you might mistakenly, if you're sitting here and you've never trusted in Christ, you might think, well, that's great. All this is for me. Actually, it's not. Notice that Paul says, he says in verse 12, we were, who were the first to hope in Christ, And then notice verse 13, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you have to hope in Christ. You have to believe in Christ. Jesus will not believe in him for you. Jesus does not hope in himself for you. You have to trust in the Lord Jesus, but when you've trusted in him, you can know that all of this is yours the moment you trust in him. That's amazing. The second you trusted in Christ, if you're a believer, all of this was already true for you. There's nothing uncertain about it.
By the way, if I can say this this morning as I close, this is the realest thing in the whole world for you to anchor your soul to the living God. This is it. So that if you feel unmoored, untethered, if you feel like you're driven around by the love of this world, this is where you anchor your soul and where God wants you anchored. I hope this morning that you'll be encouraged as you consider the greatness of the spiritual blessings that are yours in Christ, that you will praise God for his glory. If you have never trusted in Christ, I would beg you to put your trust in him today, that you would cry out to him for redemption. And then I would encourage you, if you're a believer, that you would thank God for sealing you with his, your, his spirit and that you would cry out for more of the influence and more of the indwelling of the abiding Holy Spirit of promise. God wants that for you. He wants to give you more of him. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do thank you and praise you that you are our Father, that you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We thank you that you have secured for us that everlasting inheritance. And we thank you, our Father, that you have sealed us with the spirit of promise. We pray that we would know more of him indwelling us. We pray that we would be assured of the authenticity of your promise, that we would be reminded of the ownership that you have over us, and that we would be assured that you have secured that blessed inheritance for us. And so, our God, would you stir us up this morning by way of reminder, and would you help us to praise you for the richness of your grace and the glory that you have displayed on us in Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.